Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, a partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric real estate podcast which presents real estate professionals and attorneys to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues, explanations of sophisticated real estate problems, current developments, and entertaining discussion. This podcast is a mixture of the real estate business and law. Today, we have a great guest. We have Willie Walker, the chairman and CEO of Walker and Dudlop, which is a full-service commercial real estate finance company. Uh, it's publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange, and it's really been through a dramatic growth story over the past 15 years, gone from one office to 40 offices across the country. And I just found Mr. Walker's ability uh, to present and discuss the current COVID-19 environment to be one of the best and most thoughtful that I've come across. I think you'll find that his ability to have, he's got such a pulse on the capital markets. He really understands how the money is moving right now, what's available and not available, what's in pain, not in pain. And I think that you're really going to enjoy this interview. Willie Walker is the chairman and chief executive officer of Walker and Dunlop under Mr. Walker's leadership. Walker and Dunlop has grown from a small family owned business to one of the largest commercial real estate finance companies in the United States. It's listed on the New York Stock Exchange. It was number 17 of Fortune 27's list of fastest growing public companies. The company's been named the best workplace for the past five of the past six years by the Great Place to Work Institute. And I think you'll really enjoy this episode and hearing the story of the growth. So I'm going to cut it short and we'll get right to the interview. Enjoy. Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover with Ice Miller. Today, we have a fantastic guest. We have Willie Walker, the chairman and CEO of Walker and Dunlop. Willie, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, Phil. Willie, just for our, I know a lot about Walker and Dunlop. I've seen him on a lot of deals, um, read a lot, a lot about Walker and Dunlop on, in press. Uh, could you tell our listeners just a little bit of an overview of the company and, and your role in the company? Uh company was founded in 1936 by my grandfather, Oliver Walker. It was a uh, relatively small mortgage banking company in the mid-Atlantic um, until um, the 1980s when the company got into being a Fannie Mae dust lender uh, in 1988, uh, which was to originate loans on multifamily properties for Fannie Mae. Uh, and then fast forward to the early 2000s when I joined the firm. And at that time, it was one office and um, about 46 employees. And uh, over the last 15 years, we've scaled the company from one office to 40 offices across the country. We've been, we've scaled employees from 46 up to about 800 and I think 866 is the last count I had. Uh, we went public on the New York Stock Exchange in 2010. Um, and we are now one of the largest commercial real estate finance companies in the United States. Uh, we've been Fannie Mae's largest uh, multifamily lender for five of the last seven years. Uh, we've moved up in the league tables with Freddie Mac to be their third largest Optigo lender, which is lending on multifamily properties. We are also HUD's third largest lender on multifamily properties for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, we've grown out our debt brokerage business dramatically over the past couple of years, uh, where we are an intermediary between multiple capital sources, whether that be banks, 
CMBS conduits or life insurance companies and commercial property owners who want a loan for their office building, retail center, hotel, or industrial center, as well as multifamily. And then finally, we um, over the past couple of years have built out our multifamily investment sales practice where we are uh, selling multifamily properties uh, across the country uh, for owners uh, and big developers of multifamily properties. And that group has scaled up quite nicely um, to having done over $5 billion of property sales last year. And uh, were it not for COVID, we were well on track to be doing somewhere between 8 and $10 billion of property sales in 2020. It, it's a remarkable story of growth. Um, it's kind of a generic question, but what, what do you attribute to the ability to grow so much? Is you know, A lot of companies, they, they do the right things. They, they have good people. Um, do you have any one or two things that you attribute to? And I, and I know it's kind of not a great question because there's so many factors. There's so many reasons. But there, are there any particular drivers to that sort of growth? Yeah, I'd say, first of all, Phil, W&D was a great company when I got there. It had a lot of history. It had, if you would, if you will, really good bones. Um, but I also arrived not having come from the mortgage banking business. And I think that that's an important differentiator because most companies in our industry are run by a mortgage banker, somebody who has grown up in the mortgage banking industry and has in some instances, been very successful at scaling their business. Uh, and in many instances, they build up boutique mortgage banking firms and scale to a certain size, but then to some degree kind of hit a ceiling. So because I didn't grow up in the industry, um, I grew up watching the industry, but I didn't actually grow up in the industry. I didn't get trained in the industry. When I joined Walker and Dunlop, my view was on growth, scale, and strategy and not being the best mortgage banker in the world. Uh, it also meant that I wasn't trying to compete for deal flow. In many other firms, the person who runs the firm also works on deals and gets compensated for deals. I never, ever get compensated for deals that I help with. So I think that that also made me be viewed by the bankers and brokers at Walker & Dunlop as um, uh, just a, a, a help to their own business and not somebody who might be in their back pocket. But I will also tell you that when I first joined Walker and Dunlop, we didn't have a lot of capital. We didn't have a big brand. And scaling the company in 2004 and 2005 and 2006 was extremely difficult, almost impossible, because anybody at a bigger firm wouldn't even contemplate coming to Walker and Dunlop because, again, we didn't have the brand, we didn't have the platform, and we didn't have the capital. And it wasn't until the great financial crisis that allowed us to sort of zig when others zagged. As all of our bigger competitors were dealing with layoffs and, and defaulting loans, we had a clean balance sheet and we had the opportunity to move forward rather than stand still or move backwards. Were it not for the great financial crisis, I don't think we could have started our scaling nearly as dramatically as we did. And then once we gained that scale, we then went public to raise capital and the combination of the scale and the capital then really made us a national competitor. That's extremely interesting. Um, what do you attribute to how you had 
uh, cleaner balance sheets, kind of being in a better financial position heading into the uh, the Great Recession? Was it because you were primarily in multifamily and that was a safer uh, lending, or, or do you have any other takes on it? Did you just underwrite deals better? Uh, no, I would say your first. Well, first of all, we had fantastic underwriting. Uh, we had uh, a chief credit officer and Richard Warner, who was one of the truly best in the industry. But if you look at the loss, our loss track record versus others, it's better, but it's not demonstrably better. So it's not like everybody else had massive loans in their portfolio and we had none. Um, what it was is that we only had credit risk on multifamily. And so while lots of other enterprises that were much bigger than us were dealing with defaulted loans on office buildings and on retail centers and a whole host of commercial real estate asset classes, we only had risk on multifamily and we only had risk on multifamily with Fannie Mae, where our loan book was made of cash flowing, relatively low leverage deals. So back in 2006 and 2007, when conduits were coming in and making extremely aggressive loans on multifamily, we didn't chase that market. Fannie Mae didn't chase that market. We didn't chase that market. And as a result, those over-levered multifamily loans that did default in CMBS pools, we didn't have any exposure to. I think that that's kind of a nice segue into how you're doing and, and the work the market is doing right now. You know, I, I like to date these episodes because the world's changing so fast. We're recording this on June 4th. Um, so we've, we've seen the initial effects of a government shutdown. It's still, and the COVID-19 crisis, it's still unclear in some respects. I know maybe we're getting more clarity every day, but um, how do you feel? And, and I actually, I'll start by saying, I want to circle back to your growth and your decision to go public. I've just, I've never had a CEO of a, a publicly traded company on, on the podcast or had the chance to ask him about that process. Um, and I want to get to that for sure. But um, let's talk, because I think it's just on everyone's mind right now, the pandemic and the effects on the market and kind of how we stand moving forward. Um, but let's start with you know, your company and how you feel about your positioning to weather this storm. And then, and then I also wanted to ask you about uh, the financial situation in general and the capital markets. So actually you, you could take either one. So if you think about the genesis of the crisis and you back up to mid-March, few people, if anybody, sort of predicted that we were going to have a global pandemic that would impact our country and the world to the degree that it has. So we, like everybody else, were confronted with an with a exogenous shock that none of us have ever dealt with before. And coupled with that was a statement by the White House that all loans that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and HUD had outstanding, whether in the single family space or in the multifamily space, were going to provide their borrowers with three months of forbearance. So that's never happened before. And while we hold reserves on our balance sheet from a credit standpoint for all the loans that we make with Fannie Mae, um, we've never had the federal government grant forbearance on every loan that we've made and then also been responsible at that time 
for pass-through payments to bondholders because every one of the loans that we make for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and HUD is securitized after we've made the loan and it's guaranteed by the federal government. That means the bondholders are going to get those payments. They're going to get the principal and interest payments on those mortgages, hell or high water. And we, as the Fannie Mae dust lender who originated those loans, are on the hook for advance payments, advancing payments to bondholders. So you have the federal government step in and say, you're going to have to put all these loans into forbearance if people ask you for it. And you're now responsible for advancing to bondholders. So at that moment, we were being dealt with a very, well, something we'd never dealt with before. And the market said, well, hang on a second. How much capital does Walker and Dunlop have? And if thousands of borrowers say that they want forbearance on their loans, Walker and Dunlop is responsible for advancing those payments to bondholders. So immediately our stock took a really big hit because everyone didn't know whether the $200 million sitting on our balance sheet was going to be enough money to advance through to bondholders and what the severity of the forbearance request was going to be. So from March 15th until April 15th, when we had a better view of how many loans came in for forbearance at the beginning of April, was to some degree no man's land. We didn't really know how many people were going to ask for forbearance, and we didn't know how much capital we were going to need to be able to pass through to bondholders. Fortunately, rent payments held up exceedingly strong in the first part of April. Very, very, very few borrowers came in asking for forbearance. And we also set about going to find financing when and if a significant portion of our portfolio asked for forbearance so that we could pass through those payments to bondholders. We then got into May and yet again, rent rolls held up very strong. Renters paid rent, borrowers' financials held very strong, and we got, again, in May, very, very few requests for forbearance. So here we are now in early June. We have we said in our last earnings call that we were working on putting a financing facility in place, which we are, we're just about to announce that it is actually in place. And um, we haven't had anything close to the forbearance request that we were expecting. So um, all in all, as I look back on the market's reaction to what happened, there was a very significant overreaction as it relates to our need for financing and the number of loans that were going to go into forbearance. Um, and so now where we are positioned is the multifamily markets have held up much stronger than anticipated. If we go back to the great financial crisis, multifamily as an asset class held up much, much better than any other commercial asset class. And so I feel extremely well positioned at Walker and Dunlop over the next six months, year, two years to work with our borrowers. There will clearly be certain properties that suffer more significantly than others as it relates to rent roll degradation. That will put pressure on owners to either continue to feed their mortgages or put the property and the mortgage into foreclosure. I don't expect a lot there, Phil. And the reason I don't expect a lot there is twofold. One, because the rent rolls have held up so well and people have to live somewhere. The second thing is that multifamily as an asset class has performed and will perform better than any other commercial real estate asset class through this crisis. And as such, on the other side of the crisis, I believe that values in multifamily go up 
And so therefore, if you are an owner of a multifamily asset today, even if you have stress in the asset and you need to feed your mortgage for a certain period of time, I don't believe that people give us the keys to those assets because I think they think that in the future, that asset will be worth more tomorrow than it is today. That is a very different view than things like hotel ownership and retail ownership. Well, it's good to hear some good news. Um, I'm glad that you predict that multifamilies are going to hold up strong. Um, quick little note, you you actually were one of the first people that kind of acknowledged that the coronavirus might cause some problems. I was listening to a podcast that was released um, on March 4th, and so you probably had recorded that prior to that date. Uh, that was on another podcast, and I should remember the name because it was very good. Uh, but I remember you talking about that the coronavirus might cause some issues, and we'll see how it plays out. But you know, you were early uh, to recognizing that, and it's it's documented, so you, you can say that. Um, but I also want to ask you just, and you alluded to it right there at the end, is I know you the company probably has some exposure in other industries, but just as somebody who's so familiar with the capital markets, um, what asset class do you think will be hit the hardest? I'm going to guess you're going to say hospitality, uh, but, you know, guess. <laughs> uh, but just tell us, I mean, you know so much more about the capital markets and what's, what's going on. Tell us about the different asset classes right, right now. So if you look at the hardest hit, it's hospitality. Uh, you're seeing at the high end luxury end of the market, no activity whatsoever, uh, 5% vacancy rates, and many of them haven't even opened back up. Uh, and as you move across the spectrum from the very high end to the, um, sort of, if you will, traveling professional type hotel, that is a little bit better than high end luxury, but not much. And then you keep moving down and you get to um, extended stay. That's getting hit very hard. Um, but as you continue to move down the spectrum and you get down to sort of motels and what would be sort of worker housing in a hotel environment, the vacancy rates there actually aren't that terrible. They're, you know, 10% vacancy rates and things of that nature. So there is an asset class inside of hospitality that is continuing to function as Truck drivers continue to travel across the country and don't sleep in their trucks as families get back out for vacations and, and, and are watching their budgets. Um, as traveling salesmen and women across the country still need to travel to go meet with their clients and sell their wares. So it's not a complete wipeout, but in the high end and luxury space, it's pretty ugly. And all of those loans on those properties right now are in forbearance. And so the big question I have is what happens to those loans when they come out of forbearance? If you today have a 70% loan on a hotel and the lender says you got to get current, you have one of two options. One, you got to go back to your investors and get them to give you capital to be able to feed the loan because the cash flow of the property is not going to feed it today. That's a hard discussion with your investors. Um, or you go out to try and refinance the mortgage to get a new lender. And typically in today's world, it's going to be a lower leverage deal. So if it was 70% previously, it's going to be 50% now. And while you might pick a little bit up in a tighter interest rate, 
um, you're still going to have to do a capital call to your investors to be able to pay off the existing financing. So a lot of equity investors in hospitality are going to be faced with very difficult decisions come August and September, particularly if the occupancy levels stay low. If you move from there into retail, if you've got the luxury or the luck of having grocery anchored retail, you can find financing because there are dependable cash flows off of grocery anchored retail. If you move from grocery anchored into just a strip mall that doesn't have grocery anchored, hard to find financing for that because the nail salon and the life insurance brokerage firm have not opened back up or have opened back up, but to very diminished economic activity. And then if you go to big box retail, if you're fortunate enough to have a Target or a Walmart as your anchor, you're doing really well. Uh, if you don't have that and you're a, you know, a, a mall that has Neiman Marcus and Sephora in it, well, good luck, right? Right. So um, that's kind of the retail scene. Office is kind of in the middle. Office is not, everyone's wondering about the future of office right now. Uh, I won't go into that unless you really want to go into my thoughts on what the future of office is. But at the end of the day, office buildings have long-term leases on them. And because of the long-term leases, you can underwrite an office building today and you can find financing for an office building. And so other than office buildings that have big lease maturities coming up, uh, you can find financing in offices for today fine. I think space requirements are going to change. Nobody really knows whether it's less people and more space or less people and no space or more people with less. I mean, the one thing you know is it's probably not more people with less space, right? Right. Um, but uh, I'd say that kind of office is in the middle. Then you go to industrial. Industrial is performing very well, particularly if you're a distributor for products that are going and being sold by Amazon or Walmart.com. If you happen to be located near a port city or an airport and your business is based off of import-export, you probably are suffering right now and will probably continue to suffer as the economy kicks back in. But trade is one area that until at least after the November elections, and even whether it's President Trump gets reelected or Joe Biden is the new president of the United States, Trade is going to take a while to get back up and get going. And so that's going to be under pressure. And then the final is multifamily. And as I've already said, because of the role that Fannie, Freddie and HUD play in the markets, because people need somewhere to live, they don't necessarily have to go to the mall. Uh, multifamily is holding up extremely well. And so you've got strong rent rolls. You've got plenty of capital in the market and people can find financing at extremely attractive terms today. Thank you very much for that recap. Um... I do want to ask you a little bit more about retail because I was talking to a friend of mine who represents primarily retail shopping centers and in a broker as well. And, you know, I just having gone through the last recession, I just, and having done my fair share of litigation, um, my view of it is that a lot of what is going to happen to retail and, and probably some other sectors too is just that it just has not occurred yet is that these stores that everyone's been in this wait and see mode and a lot of the stores when they reopen, if they do, 
there'll be a fair amount that just don't. Um, they will have diminished demand. It has been propped up by experiential retail and or dining and hospitality combined in a retail center, which will just come back with reduced demand or, or less capacity due to social distancing. And, and I just think a lot of it has to do with the court systems, is that a lot of governors uh, put 90-day moratoriums or requested that people hold off for 90 days. And there's just an overall sense of let's wait 90 days and see how this plays out before we start evicting everyone. And the courts are just not closed. I'm in Chicago and I was just, I had a Zoom court hearing this morning and the judge said July 6th is when we're looking like we might get courts kind of partially back open. And, you know, it's really hard to evict a non-paying tenant with the courts at doing Zoom hearings at best. And so I don't think a lot of the evictions have taken place yet, or I know that they haven't. And, and as a, it, which kind of ties into what you were talking about, right? It's, it ties into the cash flow. It, it's diminished now, but it's, it could be further diminished um, as things go forward. But at the same time, you could have some retail tenants open back up and start paying rent that have not been paying rent the past few months. So uh, what I was really thinking is going to happen is that next year, 2021, or the third and fourth quarter of this year, uh, might look a little bit more like 2009, 2010 than you know what we've seen so far. So you got to keep in mind the interests of landlords and then their financing. So the interest of landlords right now is to work with any tenant because if they lose a tenant, there's not somebody else knocking on the door to come in and take their place. So if you can get 25% rent from somebody, it's a heck of a lot better than zero rent. So landlords are very much working with retailers to come to some type of economic agreement that makes it a win-win because it's a win-lose if they evict them because there's nobody that's going to take that space tomorrow. So I, it's not that they're waiting for the court system to open up and knock out people who aren't paying because they've got a, a line of people who want to take that space. It's the complete opposite. They're not waiting for the court systems to open up because they need to work with their tenants today. The issue is going to come in on the loans on those properties. And what you have right now is a lot of those loans are in forbearance because to the point that you just made, there's a lot of liquidity in the market. Financial services institutions want to work with borrowers right now, but there is going to be a day where financial services organizations want to get paid. And so a lot of those loans right now might've been modified where the borrower was paying principal and interest and it went to just interest only during a three month period or for a six month period. You're gonna get through that three month period or six month period. And then the banker is gonna call up and say, okay, when are you paying me? When are you getting back on principal and interest? And that's the tough moment where the owner of the retail center has to look at their rent rolls. They have to look at whether the 25% payment on the rent from the retailer that they're working with is going to allow them to be able to pay their mortgage and maintain control of the asset. And then if they can't do that, then all of a sudden the bank has the very hard decision of am I foreclosing or am I going to work with the borrower? So to your point, what we're in right now is this limbo stage. There's a lot of liquidity in the market. We're waiting to see things kick back in. Landlords are working with tenants. And the moment that there's pressure put into that system, 
by either the financial services institutions, and that's where it's all going to start. That then's going to cascade through the system. And the landlord's going to go to the retailer and say, I can't afford for you to only pay me 25. I need 50. The retailer says, I can't pay you 50. The landlord says, well, then you're out. The retailer's out and the landlord is either scrambling to replace the 50%, doesn't find it and is now in default on their loan. The bank then forecloses. And now all of a sudden we've got a foreclosure cycle that comes into the system. So that's all TBD, but it's hard for me to think that we don't see a very significant step up in all of that activity in Q3 and Q4 of this year. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, well, you you gave me an in, so I do kind of want to know your thoughts on office space. Uh, just in in because I have trouble predicting whether it'll be, you know, more space, less space, uh, how it will work. And that might also tie back into what you were talking about earlier about the luxury hotels and business travelers. Um, Cause it also just kind of, kind of ties into how businesses function now that we've realized that a lot of things can be done remotely or by zoom. Um, but, you know, tell me about how you're thinking about office space use in the future. It all comes down to money. First of all, you're going to have businesses that go out of business. So there's going to be additional office space out there. And so as a result of that, because I mean, we're going into, we're in a recession, we're either going to be in a recession or a depression. But the point being is that you're going to have businesses that go out of business and no longer need their space. So there's going to be excess supply, which is going to push rents down. Uh, the that is going to make it so that it is a buyer's market, which makes it so that whether you're getting 10,000 square feet or 8,000 square feet, because you think that you're not going to need 20% of the space that you typically have used because people are working from home, you're not really going to worry about that. It's going to be, you know, it's going to come into every lease negotiation, but you're much more focused on the fact that your per square foot rent has gone from 55 bucks a, a square foot down to 45 bucks a square foot, rather than you are that you're now only needing 8,000 feet versus 10,000 feet. Um, this, the, the third thing on all that stuff is that, yeah, there are lots of pronouncements from tech companies like Twitter and others saying, you know, we're not going to go back into the office for an extended period of time. Google between 2011 and 2014 did a very significant effort with some very significant analytics behind it to try and work in a dispersed model. And what they found out was, yeah, they could work in a dispersed model, but the creativity of their teams fell off a cliff. If you are in a business that needs creativity, you will go back into the office. If you are in a business that needs teamwork, and a sense of culture, you will go back into the office. And so while space configuration is going to change and clearly a big open floor plan for as long as COVID is around is not going to be an attractive place for people to go work and therefore it's going to be reconfigured, real kind of economic shift from how many square feet people need and where people are working from, I think it's way too early to tell whether there is some big shift that dramatically changes the market. And I'd look at it quite honestly, a little bit on the electric vehicle side of things. Electric vehicles have been around for a while, but as it relates to their overall market share, 
they are not a significant portion of the market today. I think very similarly, it's easy for me to sit in my home where I have tons of technology and I spend a tremendous amount of time traveling amongst Walker and Dunlop's 40 offices. Who really cares where I am? But don't make a decision or a, or a conclusion about remote working just because Willie Walker can remote work. We're talking about big, big amounts of infrastructure, commute patterns, school patterns, school districts. And at the end of the day, and all this stuff is money. There are a lot of people saying everyone's going to leave the urban core and move to the suburbs. Well, who's got the money? You got 40 million people unemployed. Who's paying for the U-Haul van to go move from point A to point B? Who's paying the broker's commissions to move from one house to the next house? Who's relying upon buying a new house in a new place and putting their own house on the market? All of those things are what move markets. And right now, unless you can see that there's the economic capability to do it, you can talk to your blue in the face about theoretical movements, but I don't think that they move markets. I love that answer. That was very well thought out. Um, and it's kind of a nice segue into culture. I also agree that I've heard several people say, well, this is great. I love working remotely. Our team is doing fine. And another point to creativity is I don't know how you onboard someone to your team and make them feel a part of the team. I mean, it kind of feels like you can work remote, but you're just kind of treading water. It's kind of hard to grow in an all remote environment and it, and it goes back to the collaboration. So I don't know, you know, it becomes very difficult to assimilate new people and new teams to the current operations uh, in, in a remote environment. So it's just kind of the steady treading water or slight erosion on a day by day basis, rather than the whole team just fell off a cliff in terms of productivity. But I also say that because I've heard you talk about culture and that kind of ties back into me wanting to talk about your expansion, your growth. Um, I heard you tell a story about how you wanted to scale so that you could build a better culture and remove cancerous individuals uh, to your culture. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, about what culture means to, your, to you and to your company and, and how it ties into your growth? Cultures in a people business, I think in all businesses, but in a people business, culture is king. Uh, I am, just to use an example, I am amazed at how Elon Musk has been able to scale Tesla with what I can tell from afar and having had some friends who have worked there, an awful corporate culture. <laughs> awful. So here's an incredibly successful business with a visionary leader who is erratic, sporadic. You can, you can call Elon Musk, whatever you want. He's also a genius. Um, but the corporate culture there, I just don't get how Tesla has been as successful as they've been with the corporate culture that Elon Musk instills in that corporation every single day. Um, but there are some companies that are capable of winning and excelling with a bad corporate culture. But for most businesses, and particularly those that aren't building widgets or cars, but are building services and are providing services, culture is king. It's what keeps everyone together. It's what creates uh, an environment for creativity. It's what creates an environment for establishing challenges. And, and as I like to use um, Jim Collins term, BHAGs, 
which are both yeah. highly ambitious goals, um, or it's highly audacious goals, something like highly ambitious or highly audacious. I can't remember which one of the two it was, but, um, that's how you get teams to strive for the type of growth that we've been able to develop at Walker and Dunlop. Um, I would also say that there, there is, you know, many people think that if it's a small company, the company can control its culture because there are only a couple people and the, the boss gets to talk to everyone every day. When we were a much smaller company, it was very difficult for me to change the culture because of what you just talked about. There were a couple people in the company when I came in who really didn't want to see it change. They wanted to see things happen the way that they'd happened. And because they were responsible for a huge amount of our business and sales, I was somewhat handcuffed to get them to either adhere to the new culture or leave the company. And it wasn't until I'd scaled the company to a certain size where I could sit down and say, okay, you got two options, either join the team or get off the team. But many people are hamstrung in sort of small to medium-sized businesses in having one or two big salespeople who can dominate the culture because they know that they basically are irreplaceable. Um, and then now that we're big, you do obviously have to play around with how big can you get before you lose the uniqueness of the culture. Uh, I don't know the explicit answer as it relates to how big Walker and Dunlop will become before we sort of lose the personal touch and feel. But where we are positioned in the market today is, I believe, in the complete sweet spot in the sense that we have all the capabilities of the big firms that we compete with. We can do lending on the scale of Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, and CBRE, all three firms with much bigger balance sheets, much bigger employee bases, and much bigger brands. But we go head to head with all three of them every single day and we win all the time. And yet we also have the touch and feel of a family company and a family owned company that makes it so that our relationships with our customers are much more intimate. And when, like I did this morning in a sales call, when we're going up against one of these big firms and they say, well, why should I pick Walker and Dunlop over? And this morning it was JLL that I was pitching against. I said, if you hire JLL, you get your banking team. And that's all you get. You're not going to get the senior management team at JLL. You're, you're not going to get the CEO of JLL coming into the pitch. And clearly, if your deal goes off the rails, the CEO of JLL isn't going to know it goes off the rails. If you hire Walker and Dunlop, you get this great team and you also get me and the entire firm. And that is exceedingly compelling when you have the size and scale that we have. And so it's that combination of big company capabilities with a small company touch and feel that differentiates us in the market today and has made us so successful. Yeah, that's awesome. I could I could imagine you making that pitch. That and being the recipient of that, that would be very compelling to use your word uh, to hear that. That's really cool. It's one of the things I like about Ice Miller is it's a large firm with all the capabilities you need, but it. it it's Indiana based. It's very Midwest. It has that Midwestern vibe of we're all going to work together and make sure everything's handled. You know, I just want to ask you about, so this is a family, been in the family for generations, but you decided to go public. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why you made that decision and how you kind of built consensus in the company that was the right thing to do? 
I didn't have to do a whole lot of consensus building. Uh, I was CEO and my father was chairman. So um, it was really a two person decision. Uh, and I don't, I don't in any way want to say that I wasn't extremely solicitous to all of my fellow uh, executives at Walker and Dunlop and most particularly Howard Smith, who's our president, who's been my partner in growing this firm and is a very significant shareholder in the firm. So Howard clearly had input and comments on it, but at the same time, quote unquote, building consensus for something like that was really down to my father as the largest shareholder and the chairman of the company and me as CEO. Um, hey, sometimes your dad's the hardest pitch, you know, for all of us. Uh, that, that is for sure. Um, but uh, I would just say that, you know, I think I was naive enough and arrogant enough to think that going public was a really cool thing to do. Um, I was clearly naive in the sense that I didn't understand what it's like to be a micro cap company listed on the New York Stock Exchange and how hard it would be to build up an investor base, build up liquidity in the stock, and then scale the business and actually be able to use the stock as a currency. You sort of think about going public and you say, oh, great, you've now got, you know, publicly traded stock and you can go use it as currency to buy other businesses. Well, not until you get liquidity, not until you get real volume in the stock. And so um, you need to understand that why you're going public and what you're going to have to do to please investors, to be able to create liquidity in the stock, to um, then get investors to back what you're doing. Um, the quarterly calls as it relates to being a publicly traded company, we already did quarterly biz, uh, board meetings. We published big quarterly board books long before we went public. So all the SEC filings and all that kind of stuff, it's, you know, it's a quote unquote hassle. We spend a lot of money on it, but it didn't change the way that we manage the business one iota. And then very fortunately, since we've gone public, our stock has performed exceptionally well. And so to this day, nine and a half years after we went public, I have yet to meet with a single investor who is either questioned something we've done or sat in the meeting and sort of said, you guys have screwed up. Um, and so the quote unquote pressure from the capital markets has never been there because we've performed exceptionally well, we've communicated well, and we've done really well. Well, thanks for being so candid and explaining that. You all have done a lot of mergers and acquisitions, and that's part of your growth. And you grew a lot during the last recession. Have you um, already seen any deals since the pandemic started and the market went down that someone else did or, or market that you had a shot at? We're like, oh man, missed out on that one. That would have been a good buy. So uh, we are a very acquisitive company. Uh, we are looking at a lot right now. And I saw I saw a um, a brokerage team go to one of our competitors that I sort of scratched my head on why they went to that competitor. And I sort of said, man, I wish we'd been in the mix there. So that did happen. Uh, uh, CoStar, which is run by Andy Florence, who's one of my closest friends and former Walker Nella board member. They just bought a firm called 10X. Um, I was very impressed that Andy did the 10X deal. Uh, wasn't for him a very big deal. It only cost him $150 million and CoStar's market cap today is $26 billion. So it's a not of a deal for Andy, but a really good deal. And then uh, Graystar, which is a huge, both manager as well as owner of apartment buildings, 
Um, they just bought another property management business, uh, which is a great move by Bob Faith and the executive team at Graystar. So there are a number of deals going on. We're looking at a number of things. And um, I think, you know, as is the case with, we, we have always zigged when others have zagged. Uh, we made acquisitions in the great financial crisis. We made um, acquisitions when people thought that Fannie and Freddie were going to be wound down by the federal government and weren't going to exist anymore. We went and kind of doubled down in that space. Um, and so we have been somewhat counter cyclical. And I would just say that, as I've said to many investors, they ought to expect Walker and Dunlop to continue to be counter cyclical or zigging when others zag. Uh, but we've got to make sure that we're buying the right thing and uh, that we're getting a great team with whatever we buy. All right. So um, appreciate that answer. And then I just wanted to ask you as an avid runner, um, before I ask you the fun question, though, you've you've started a podcast. Walker and Dunlop is producing their own content. Can you just tell people where to, because I'm sure anybody that's listening to this would love to hear yours and, and see yours. Uh, where can people go for that? So all of our webcasts, which we're um, holding every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern time. Uh, it's called the Walker Wednesday webcast. Uh, I've been blessed to have a number of amazing guests on it. Um, I have Jeff Blau, who's the CEO of the related companies in New York coming on next week. I had Andy Florence, the CEO of CoStar last week, and I had the governor of Colorado. Um, I had Andy yesterday. I had the governor of Colorado last Wednesday. Uh, but they can just go to YouTube and put in Walker and Dunlop. And on our YouTube channel, um, all of the past webcasts have been there. And then there are links on how you can join in for future ones. All right. And then as an avid runner, uh, where's your favorite place to go running? What's what, I'm a runner myself, uh, but I've not run the Mar Boston Marathon in 236. But uh, where's your favorite place to go running? So, Phil, um, I'm actually in uh, Sun Valley, Idaho right now, and um, there's a there's a six mile loop here that's called Lane's Loop. And uh, if there's I've run in many, many places around the globe and because I travel so much, I've I've run in the middle of really dense urban centers. I've had great countryside to run in, et cetera, et cetera. But um, Lane's Loop here in Sun Valley is my favorite actual run. And then I would also say that um, there is nothing like running through mile 13 of the Boston Marathon through Wellesley College and mile 20, 21 of the marathon by at the top of Heartbreak Hill through the campus of BC. Um, those two sections of the Boston Marathon and for the period of time that you're in that throng of students yelling and screaming, um, it's as close to a professional athlete experience as anyone any any uh, amateur athlete will ever experience. And uh, I would just say that that's a really unique and fun thing to do. Willie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Phil. Thanks for having me. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 